All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. It is so good to be with you. Hey, isn't it good to have Pastor Chris back in the house today? Man, um, we love you so much, Pastor Chris, and I am so grateful to have you back in the saddle today and leading us um, so well. Um, it has been a journey, as he mentioned, of what he has walked through over the past few weeks. And I just want to say, hey, thank you, church, for the way that you love. Thank you for the way that you serve. Thank you for the way that you have served the Green family during this season. Um, it is uh, commendable the way that you have um, operated in love and service to them and to the Lord in, in this. So it's, we're glad to have you back, brother. Thanks for being back in the saddle um, today. Hey, um, today is, I just want to say before I begin and before I dive in, we are we're in a crazy, crazy moment um, as, a, as a culture, and I just, this week, as I have been processing and walking through everything that we have been facing, even looking at what happened with the three policemen that were fired from Wilmington, the Wilmington Police Department this week, and just thinking through the effects that it's having here in our city and just around our country, our country is failing right now. I think we just need to kind of stop and just recognize that. Our country, our society, and our culture is failing right now. It, it literally is. It, it's failing. It is not working. It's not working. And in, in, in one way, that just, it kind of frustrates me, and it kind of devastates me and discourages me. But I also want to say to us today as the church, y'all, this is our moment. This is why we are here. If Jesus didn't need us here, he would have already taken us to be with him in heaven. But this is why we are here. We have an unprecedented opportunity to show love, to show grace, to show humility, to show honor, to demonstrate what the kingdom of God is like. We got that. This is, this is our opportunity, okay? And so let me just bring you in. If you've been ranting on Facebook, if you've been going nuts on somebody, if you've been divisive, if you've been living in sin, hey, this is our moment to operate in holiness, okay? To operate in faithfulness and to follow Jesus in this moment. This is our opportunity. And so a lot has happened this past week. A lot has happened over the past few weeks. Um, we're actually doing something uh, tonight that's going to be pretty special. Um, I hope that you'll take a look in to join us at 7.30 tonight on YouTube and Facebook. Um, I'm having a conversation with uh, my, what I call my integrated pastors group, six pastors in Wilmington, local pastors of different ethnicities, different races, and different dom denominations, a group that I'm invested in and have been for years. And we're having an open and honest and candid conversation about the church, about culture, and about race. And so I hope you will join us uh, this evening at 7.30. I'm sure that it will be um, impactful for you in this process. So, hey, church, today we are jumping back into our teaching series, Set Apart. And get this, I was doing uh, the math this past week. It has been 16 Sundays since we have been um, gathering online like, online like this. Isn't that crazy? 16. I mean, six, I, I counted it up this past week, 16 Sundays that we have been doing this. It has been so crazy, but I, I just want to say this. I really honestly believe and genuinely believe that, that this has been the richest season for me personally for preaching and teaching the Word of God th than ever before. Um, I genuinely just believe that um, God has been so faithful in this season, and we kind of pressed pause on the series that we were going through, and we we sought the Lord and came up with other things that we walked through. And I just, I think about um, even teachings of walking through the Psalms, Pastor Chris, and walking through teachings on the wilderness and walking through these. It's, it's been a just, I just want to honor the Lord today and thank him for 
his, his goodness and his faithfulness as we have done this um, together. He's good, isn't he, church? He's good. He's good. And so I'm so grateful for him. But today we're jumping back into our series that we began at the beginning of the year called Set Apart, where we're walking through this book in the New Testament, 1 Peter. And as is our custom, we like to go through books of the Bible as much as possible. Um, We love to take the Word of God and just open it. We are a Bible church, just for the record. We love the Bible. We love the Word of God. We submit to the Bible as our authority, as the revelation of God to us. And so we love the Bible, and we're jumping back into 1 Peter um, after a several Several weeks of taking a break on this. So let me just remind you kind of what First Peter is and the context for uh, today. Um, there, it, it, today, as, as we think about this moment, as we enter into this space, we need to recognize that it is no longer comfortable to be a Christian in our culture. It's just the days of being comfortable um, as a Christian in our culture are long gone. The reality is that America is actually becoming what uh, sociologists, sociologists refer to as post-Christian. What that means is that Christianity, as being culturally accepted, is on its way out rather than on its way in. Post-Christian means that Christian identity, belief, and practice is no longer the norm for society, even in the Bible Belt. And rather than Christianity being the norm of our culture, um, culture is actually hostile to it. So a Christian research organization called uh, or named the Barna Group actually did a study that was released last year um, uh, looking over our entire country on this post-Christian reality, and it actually showed that Wilmington, North Carolina ranks number 37 on the list of post-Christian cities in America, higher than, get this, Las Vegas, Baltimore, and Portland, which is kind of crazy, right? I mean, you never thought that of sleepy little Wilmington. Here's what that means. It is no longer normal to be a Christian in our culture. Those days are gone. It's it's no longer normal to be a Christian in our culture. And if you are a Christian, you are not seen as normal in our culture's eyes. And you need to know that. You need to know that. You need to think about that. You need to feel that. You need to experience that. You need to see that. You need to face that. You need to reckon with that reality. But honestly, in kind of a weird, maybe quirky, pastoral way, I'm actually kind of um, encouraged about that and grateful for that. And, and here, here's why. Christians were never meant to be normal. Jesus didn't save us to just be like everybody else and to be normal in society. We, we were never designed to be normal in the first place. I'll say it this way. Christians will never change the world by being normal. Christians will never change the world by being normal. The way we're going to change the world is by being not normal. So, people don't like you, people reject you, people crucify you. Great, great, this is how we change the world. And so, I mean, virtually, I mean, nothing about our faith and our way of living is normal in the world's eyes. Living according to faith, operating according to faith is not normal. Extravagant generosity is not normal. Humility is not normal. Sacrifice is not normal. Honor is not normal, especially in our culture. Holiness is not normal. Unity across ethnic barriers and cultural barriers is not normal. Forgiveness of injustices is not normal. In Christ followers, we take our cues from Christ, not culture. So welcome to not being normal. And not only are we not normal, you also need to recognize this about being a post-Christian culture is that society is actually hostile to us. But the good news, or maybe this is encouraging, 
This is the way that it's been for a couple thousand years in most cultures. If you'd go all the way back to the first century, just after the time of Christ, during Peter's lifetime, who's the author of this book, First Peter, in the first century, Rome was actually burned to the ground in AD 64 in July. Nero was the emperor at the time in the Roman Empire. Some suspected that he intentionally started the fire so that he could rebuild the city even more gloriously. As a scapegoat, um, he blamed Christians and accused them of setting the city on fire. And as a result, unbelievable kinds of persecution were inflicted on these Christians in Rome. And many Christians would be drugged um, into the streets, hung on poles, doused in oil, and then set on fire and burned like lanterns throughout the city. And Peter, this writer of this book, this apostle, he died, history tells us, in that persecution. But what happened as a result of this hostility to these early Christians is that Christianity spread like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire. Christians would actually become more emboldened, not less. These early Christians would become more resilient, not less. The historian Rodney Stark, you've heard me say this before. Rodney Stark, the historian, would say that by the end of the first century, roughly about 7,000 in his estimation, Christians by the end of the first century in the Roman Empire, about half the student body population of UNCW. But by the, by the end of the third century, the origin, the early church father, he tells us that over half of the Roman Empire were Christians. What this shows us is that the hotter the hostility gets, you could say the hotter the gospel gets. The hotter the gospel gets. And isn't that ironic? You burn Christians, but that only makes the gospel burn even hotter in culture. So you need to know this. Christianity has always thrived in hostile cultures. Christianity has always thrived in hostile cultures. And honestly, if I'm Satan, which I'm not, but if I'm Satan, like my strategy is just to leave Christians alone. Let them get comfortable. Just let them acclimate to society. Let them have whatever they want. Let them have luxury. Just let them fit in. Don't give them any hostility because actually when you give them hostility, that's when they actually get more amped and not less amped. I would argue that is what's happened in America over the past several decades. We've gotten comfortable. We've gotten comfortable. We got so used to dressing up on Sunday and showing up to Smells and Bells Baptist Church and then eating a big lunch afterwards, and you see where that has led us. And the flame of the gospel is not burning the hottest right now in the world in America. They say that the global center of the thrust and the flame and the greatest movement of the gospel right now in the world is not America, and it hasn't been here for a long time. It's actually in places like South Korea and China and Africa. And you see the gospel is actually burning like crazy in those places. You see, that's why I say that hostility is actually a good thing for us and for the gospel. And the days of smooth sailing as a Christian in America are gone. And this book, this letter from Peter, the first of his two letters that he writes just before he would die, as he's writing this to these Christians, they were already experiencing what it's like to try to follow Jesus in a culture that is hostile to the gospel. And so he writes to us today to help us to understand how we should live as followers of Jesus in a culture that is no longer helpful, but is hostile to the message of Jesus. And Karen Jobs, last thing I'll say before we dive in. 
Karen Jobes, the premier commentator on 1 Peter, she says this in her commentary. 1 Peter presents the Christian community as a colony in a strange land, an island of one culture in the midst of another. The new birth that gives Christians a new identity and a new citizenship in the kingdom of God makes us, in whatever culture we happen to live, visiting foreigners and resident aliens there. That's us. That's us. And as well, hey, just mention this again before we dive in. Hey, there's a theological guide that we wrote on the book of 1 Peter. So if you want to do a deep dive, you can go on our website and find that theological guide to help you as a resource for the book of 1 Peter, okay? So here we go. Today we're in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to take the first six verses, and this context falls in the middle of a couple previous passages that kind of fit together where Jesus is helping us to understand how to operate, first of all, as citizens of the state, second of all, as kind of employees in the workforce, and then thirdly today, as we will see, to operate as wives, husbands and wives in the home and in the culture that we find ourselves. So here's the title for my day, the most Creative title that we've ever seen in the history of the Bridge Church. Here's the title, Wives and Husbands, Part 1, okay? Wives and Husbands, Part 1. Here we go, 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, buckle up, we're going to go fast, we're going to go deep. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is what it says. Likewise, or that word means in the same respect or in the same manner, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Immediately, question marks you've got in your mind. So that even if some, speaking of husbands, do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct or behavior, do not let your adorning be external on the outside, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, jewelry, I have a hard time saying that word for some reason, I'm not sure why, jewelry or jewelry, what is it? Jewelry or the clothing you wear, verse 4. But let your adorning or your beautification be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight. God's sight is very precious. You need to know that God sees that as very precious. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. Verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Okay, let me just acknowledge, um, interesting topic, interesting text, a lot of question marks that are going on in your head. Whether you've been in church for decades or you're brand new to this thing, you're like, what is going on here? Let me just mention that there are two, I think, this unbiblical extremes. When it comes to this topic, we start talking about the home, we start talking about marriage, we start talking about gender, we start talking about men and women, husbands and wives. I feel like there's two extremes that kind of happen whenever you begin to talk about this. Um, one is the, uh, the, the unbiblical extreme of misogyny, where just um, men take this on ourselves. This kind of gives us some kind of license to, to practice some kind of misogynist misogynistic prejudice behavior towards women, and that's an extreme, and we need to know that that is unbiblical. The, the other extreme on this side are those Christians who just avoid these texts altogether. They just, I don't know, take a sharpie and act like they don't exist in their Bible, and they end up with just some kind of secular cultural idea of this as well, and we need to say that is unbiblical as well. We need to, we need to understand what this means, and I told you that we aren't normal. You need to understand what this means in our culture, how we should live this, and how we should think this out. 
So let, let me do this. Let me give you several affirmations that I think will help set the foundation for the text today and actually part two, which Pastor Chris is going to do next Sunday, um, specifically directed towards husbands. Here are several affirmations I want to issue for us today. First of all, all people are created in the image of God. America, please hear this. All people are created, created in the image of God. Every single human bears the essence of God on them, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of educational level, regardless of economic status, regardless of age, and regardless of gender. And we want to do our best as the people of God, as the church of God, to hold every believer, uphold every believer and every person as significant in the kingdom of God, regardless of their ethnicity, social status, or gender. Secondly, Men and women are created equal in essence, dignity, and value as image bearers of God. We unequivocally believe that men and women are created with equal essence in the image of God. We believe that men and women are in no way superior or inferior to one another in any respect. And just for the record, the Bible does not endorse any form of oppression against women. And there is nothing intrinsically more valuable than one gender over the other. Men and women share equal essence, worth, value, and dignity as human beings. Additionally, gender is a beautiful and glorious gift of God's creation. It's a beautiful gift. It's a glorious gift. We believe it's actually unbiblical and unfruitful to ignore or diminish the role of gender in God's creation. Now, I understand there are a ton of things that are happening right now in our culture related to gender. And I'm not going to go down those roads, but we, we need to understand and to recognize at the core of biblical understanding and ideology is that God intentionally created humanity in two distinct genders or two distinct sexes, both male and female. And each is a beautiful and wonderful and glorious gift from God. And men, men and women, um, are quite different, we understand, in a variety of different ways. And that's good. Those are good things. Those are beautiful things. We, we need to cherish our differences. We need to celebrate our differences in the same way that we would not advocate for someone to be colorblind regarding someone's skin color. We would neither endorse the notion of being gender blind and acting like there aren't any differences in gender or beautiful, beautiful differences in gender. The differences in gender between men and women should be celebrated because these differences actually embody the very creation of God. Help us understand the very image of God. See, in the kingdom of this world, de uh, sorry, differences rather are, are demonized, but in the kingdom of God, differences are actually celebrated. We can celebrate the things that are different about one another. And we believe any minimization of gender or gender differences is ultimately unhelpful. Additionally, God made men and women equal in essence, but distinct in function. And though God has made male and female equal in their essence and their value and their dignity, he has not made them exactly the same. He has not made them equal in their function. God created men and women each with their own unique distinct function in the world. For instance, now this is the clearest one and the most obvious one for why I, and why I am using it, but the most obvious example of the differing functions between men and women is the woman's ability in childbearing. 
Now, obviously, not every woman has that ability, and I understand that. But women, as opposed to men, um, have that unique opportunity and have that unique function. It's a unique and distinct role that women are to fulfill as image bearers of God. And it's a wonderful, beautiful gift from God. And therefore, men, we don't have that opportunity. We don't have that function. Um, We shouldn't get bitter or angry about that. We should just celebrate the differences in function in the way that God has made us. And so we should celebrate this difference and celebrate the diversity for how God has uniquely designed men and women. As well, God created men and women to function in a complementary fashion. I mean, just think about this. God did not create one kind of human. He he created two kinds of humans for the purpose of a complementary relationship together. And from the opening pages of Scripture, we see that God, in his wisdom and his providence, created these two distinct sexes for our good and for his glory. And in light of his good created order and the fact that men and women both share in divine image bearing, God intends for men and women to have different yet complementary roles and responsibilities in the way that they live and the way that they operate. Now, these role distinctions, we need to be clear, do not arise from cultural definitions of masculinity or femininity, but are an integral part of God's plan for humanity as revealed in Scripture. And we should recognize them as God's grace to both men and women, protecting and preserving and practicing them for his glory, our joy, and the sake of human flourishing as well. The church, the church is God's demonstration community for how his kingdom should operate, for how his creation should operate, really, especially on matters of gender. So we are supposed to show the world how this works. We should champion both men and women, husbands and wives, and demonstrate to the world what this looks like. And can I say today that the world does not have a good picture of what this looks like? And can I even say that the church hasn't always done a good job on this? And we got to get this right. we got to repent of how we failed in this. And the expectation isn't that Christians are perfect by no means, but the expectation is that Christians, according to God's word, are living according to what he has said and what he has outlined for us. And we've got to do a good job, y'all. Can I just say we've got to do a better job? We're supposed to be the demonstration to the world of what this looks like. And we just need to acknowledge there has been a lot of harm done against women in previous generations, even in the church. And just for the record, that is wrong. This is wrong, and it is evil, and we should, we should combat all forms of oppression against women, and we must do that. And then here's the last affirmation before we jump back into the text. God has established the husband as head of his marriage. God has established um, the husband as head of his marriage. We believe that Scripture, in God's providence and his design, Scripture actually orders marriage and the marriage relationship. We see this explicitly clear in Ephesians and elsewhere where the husband is supposed to operate as the head of the marriage. And we'll explain what that is in just a minute. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, 22 through 27 says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Which just shows us right there that the marriage is supposed to be a picture of what the relationship Christ has with his church is like. Verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their own husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her 
having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or any wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Let's jump into this real quick. Headship, head, husband as head, and submission. I think these words are loaded words, and they can mean very different things to a lot of different people. Let me break this down um, like this. Headship does not mean domination. Headship does not mean domination. Headship does not mean superiority. Headship does not mean supremacy. Headship does not mean the husband makes all the decisions. I believe headship means authority and accountability. In God's design, in God's framework, I believe God holds the husband accountable for his marriage. I believe God expects the man to operate in such a way that he is actually accountable for the health and for the direction of the marriage. And so just for the record, if you're a husband today and you're watching this and you're with us today and you began to hear me talk about or read the scripture passages about husband being the head and you started to smile or you started to chuckle, that demonstrates you have no idea of what headship is. No idea of what headship is. Headship is not easy. It isn't a benefit. It's actually hard. Headship is, is doing what is not best for you. It's doing what is best for others who follow you. Headship means you take the responsibility to sacrifice yourself in order to ensure the health of those who are following you. That's, that's the gospel, just by the way. That, that's the gospel. And marriage is supposed to represent the gospel. Here's the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus loves us. Jesus loves us. And he came for us, and he entered the fabric of human history, and he actually gave himself up. He gave himself up for his bride, for you and me. Jesus took on your sin. He took on your shame. He took on your guilt. He took on everything that was deplorable about you. On the cross, Jesus Christ took your sin, past, present, and future on him. He bore your sin. He carried your iniquity. He took it on himself, and he died for that in your place so that you wouldn't have to. Giving of himself and sacrificing himself for your good and my good so that we could know the Father. That's what headship is. Headship is giving yourself up, sacrificing yourself up for others, specifically for your bride. It's not you get to do whatever you want, make all the decisions. No, you have the responsibility of being accountable for the health and the direction of your marriage. And you must do whatever it takes, even sacrificing yourself and your conveniences and your comforts for the good of your marriage and for the good of your wife. Lay down your life for your wife. What wife, just by the way, doesn't want that in a husband? What wife doesn't want that kind of husband that lives in that kind of way? That's what headship is. Now here's what submission is. First of all, submission does not mean inferiority. It does not mean inferiority. Submission does not mean be a doormat, close your mouth, shut up, don't say anything, don't help with anything, don't challenge anything, don't make any decisions. It does not mean that. That's absolutely not what submission means. We even see like the, the crowning gem in the Bible of, of what a virtuous woman is in the book of Proverbs 31. She's not a doormat, just for the record. She's not a doormat. She is a beast. She is a beast. She is an entrepreneur. Proverbs 31 tells us that she owns multiple businesses. She's into real estate. She's like buying land and buying fields, and she's traveling. 
It says that she does um, business internationally from afar. It says that she employs several maidens that are actually in her home, working in the home and working with the family. And it says that her husband praises her. He's like, you got it going on and you are amazing and I'm just going to praise you. That's the, that's the picture of, of what a, the virtuous woman or the virtuous wife is. I want to say this about submission. Submission is not about oppression. Submission is about order. It's just about order in the relationship. And every organization, every family, every team, every business must have order in the relationship or chaos will ensue. So for instance, I think the clearest biblical example of this, that submission does not mean oppression, it just means order. Think of the Trinity, the relationship of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What we see when we look in Scripture at the Trinity, at God, we see each person of the Trinity is equally God, yet each person and member of the Trinity has a unique, distinct role and function as being God. So quite specifically, we see Jesus continually, and he says this multiple times over and over and over again, that he was sent from the Father and that he willingly submits to the Father's will, John 6, 38. Theologians refer to this as functional subordination. What that means is that Jesus willingly and gladly submits to the will of the Father to do his mission on the earth. And this difference in function does not mean that God the Father or God the Son is in some way superior or inferior to one another. Rather, it demonstrates that they share equality in their essence, but distinction in their function. I believe what God is after in the Bible, in the marriage relationship specifically, is about order. And that's what we see here in the context. Peter does this in three different ways. Back in chapter 2, verse 13, he talks about order as citizens of the state and that we all should be in a place of submission to the authority that God has put in the state. Order in the way that that relationship should work. Order as, the next thing in chapter 2, verse 18, order as employees in the workplace, specifically bond servants with their masters and the way that they should have order in that relationship. And then here in chapter 3, order in the relationship of marriage between husbands and wives. And notice that the order in these three contexts has nothing to do with the quality of the relationship, but everything to do with God's design for the relationship. So whether it's with the state, I mean, can we just all acknowledge that the state, especially in Rome in the first century, was not gracious and was not a good authority. But God still instructed his people to operate in an orderly way with that, in that relationship. And can we just acknowledge that masters in the first century weren't always um, great masters, but actually oppressive. And he even says, even if you suffer unjustly, then to still operate in an orderly way in that relationship. And even here in our passage, Peter even says, if your husband isn't even a believer, doesn't know Jesus, has never experienced the gospel, you experienced it, you became a Christian, you got saved, but your, your husband isn't, you, this still remains true for you. And the main point that Peter is trying to make is that our conduct, the way that we behave, that way that we operate as Christians in society, the way that we function as Christians in society, and specifically in our context in this marriage relationship, your conduct, your internal character and behavior will be what shines brightest to a lost and dying world, even if your husband is not a follower of Jesus. And Peter's whole point here is about where you find your meaning and your value and your beauty and, and, and where you focus in, in this kind of relationship. So sp- specifically, look back at verse 3 and verse 4. This is what he says to the wives. Verse 3, do not let your adorning, that's the word for beautification, 
Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, there it goes again, or the clothing you wear, verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a, a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. He's, I don't think that Peter is trying to necessarily give you a legalistic checkbox of whether or not you should have makeup or whether or not you should have jewelry. I think what Peter is primarily trying to say is your beautification. Are you focused primarily on external beautification or internal beautification? And our culture, we need to understand, seems to only value external beautification. And Peter says true beauty is on the inside. True beauty. What, what, what makes a, a woman beautiful and a wife specifically beautiful and the way that she adorns herself isn't on the exterior, but rather is on the interior. Proverbs, in, Proverbs 31 in the passage of a virtuous woman says this, Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful, beauty is, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Just hear me, women. Hear me specifically, wives today. I want to encourage you with this. What you look like on the inside is far more valuable than what you look like on the outside. God measures your beauty not primarily by what you look like on the outside, but what you look like on the inside. And the text says that this kind of beauty is precious in God's sight. The spirit of a wife, the spirit of this woman is what is beautiful to God and is precious to God. And the way that Peter describes it is a gentle and a quiet spirit. More question marks. All right, more question marks. Let me just acknowledge that we have many women in our church who are great leaders, who are strong, and who are even outspoken. And I actually think that is a great thing. I'm married to one of those women, by the way. I don't think that Peter is advocating for women to just shut up and sit down when he says gentle and quiet. Rather, I think um, what he's doing is he's recognizing the kind of spirit that a woman should operate from as opposed to the opposite spirit that we see throughout the Bible, especially in the book of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs, we see at one extreme is, is the virtuous woman in this kind of lifestyle. And then in Proverbs, you also see the other kind of extreme, which is the quarrelsome wife, the Bible says. Proverbs 25, 24, it says this, it is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Proverbs 27, 15, and 16. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is like trying to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. Quarrelsome. This word quarrelsome, it literally means strife or contention or sowing discord. The contentious, the contentious wife in Proverbs is uh, con constantly creating controversy and, and arguments and strife and division in the marriage. She sees herself as in competition with her husband. She has to have everything done her way, constantly arguing and debating about the things that she disagrees with. It's constant fighting and strife in the relationship. And rather than be an agent of unity in the marriage, she's an enemy of unity in the marriage. And Proverbs says, it's miserable to live, like, live with a woman like that. Absolutely miserable. And we need to recognize that that kind of behavior and attitude in marriage is wrong and sinful and destructive. And the opposite of what Peter is advocating for is gentleness. Now, for clarity, gentleness does not mean powerlessness. If you have to tell someone to be gentle, it's because they actually have power. It's because they have power. Gentleness means power under control. 
This is the same word actually for meekness, power under control. And Jesus himself would even refer to himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 as being gentle. Jesus does. Pastors are even called in 1 Timothy and Titus to be gentle. I actually had to repent of this because of this past week. I was in a situation where I was not gentle and God called me on it. And gentleness is also a fruit of the spirit we see in Galatians 5, which should be a behavior and an attribute of all believers in the way that we should operate. And just for clarity, quiet here does not mean shut up. Quiet literally can be translated here as peaceful. It's the idea of promoting peacefulness in your marriage. And Peter says this is what true beauty is. It's about the heart. It's about what's on the inside. It's about your spirit. It's about the way that you conduct yourself on the inside. And this is what is really beautiful. And Peter says, living this way, operating this way, as a believer, as a wife, will even give you the opportunity to win your husband for Christ, assuming he is a follower of Jesus. I know that we got several wives today, a part of our church, a part of our body, and your husband is not a believer right now. And can I just say, I don't know, I don't have a clue of what, that, what that's like. I, I got no clue what that's like. Can I just say for the record too, I got no clue what it's like being a wife, just for the record. I, I, I honestly, I, I, can't, I, I can't understand what, what, what that's like. And, and so just let, let me just encourage you today. Many of you have been hurt. Many of you have been broken. Many of you have been damaged, even by your husband or even an ex-husband. And can I just say to you today um, that God loves you. He loves you. He, he can heal you. He can restore you. The way that you operate on the inside is beautiful and precious in God's eyes. And that internal spirit has power, power to even demonstrate to the lost world what Christ must be like. And even in your injustice and in your even victimization or abuse or whatever you've been through. And just for the record today, I'm not advocating that you um, remain in a relationship that is abusive. If you are, we need to talk. We're pastors. We're here to help. We're here to talk, and you shouldn't stay and shouldn't remain in an abusive relationship in that way. Let us lead you through that. But you find yourself in that situation or a past situation, just let me encourage you today that you've got great power in your conduct and in your spirit by the way that you live and the way that you operate. And as we um, wrap it up today, I'm going to ask Alex to join me. Um, can we just do a heart check today, um, whoever you are? I know that not everybody here today is, is even married or husband and wife. I know many of you are single. A large portion of our church is single. A large portion of our culture is actually single. Um, can we just do a heart check today of whoever you are and wherever you are um, today? What is the posture of your heart today? What is the interior like of your life? What is your conduct like? And what is the spirit? What is the quality of your spirit? Hey, if you're, if you're a husband today, um, we're going to get to you next week. Get ready for that. But if you're, if you're a husband today, how do you see your wife? How do you view your wife? Can we begin to champion our wives, celebrate our wives, Adore our wives, not based on what they look like on the outside, but who they are on the inside and their spirit and their conduct. Men, if you're a husband today, 
and you've got a wife that loves Jesus. You've got a wife that prays for you. You've got a wife that loves her children and that serves sacrificially in your home or whatever she does. Can you celebrate that today? Can you champion that today? Can you find opportunities today in the days ahead to celebrate who your wife is on the inside rather than the outside? And if you're a wife today, your wife, and you're trying to figure this thing out, maybe you're confused, maybe you're overwhelmed, uh, maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you're pressing along, headed down the straight and narrow, trying to do your best. Can we just do an inventory today of the heart and of the spirit? What is the quality of your spirit like today? What is the relationship with your husband like today? Do you trust God for your marriage? Or do you feel like you have to be God for your marriage? Do you trust God's design? Do you trust his order? Do you trust what God has called you to do? See, the reason why this is so challenging, if we go all the way to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we see that the first marriage, the first relationship didn't go so well. Even in the garden, even in the most pristine environment, we see Adam being passive in his role for his bride. And then we see Eve stepping in. Seems like trying to take control or to take the steps, and they're both wrong. And God would say in the curse of that sin was at least twofold for the husband and the wife. The wife, she would, it says that her desire would be for her husband, which means to control and to rule. But then it says part of that curse is that the husband will rule over you, which means a, not a gracious leadership, not a sacrificial leadership, but sin in the marriage. This is the reason why it's so hard. Hey, regardless if you are a husband or a wife uh, today, hey, can can we, have a, can we have a renewal of the relationship today? Some of you aren't even sleeping in the same room. Some of you aren't even on speaking terms. Some of you have been harsh with each other for days or weeks or months. Can today be a renewal of the relationship, a restoration of the relationship? Could you confess sin? Can you confess the, the pride? Can you confess the damage? You can have restoration in your marriage today. Your marriage can be beautiful. Your marriage can be holy. Your marriage can be awesome. It can be. And can I encourage you today to hang in there and stick with it. And God can do a work in your life today. Would you pray with me? God, today we submit this to you. We submit our lives to you. We submit our marriages to you for those of us who are married. For those of us who aren't married, who perhaps are looking to get married someday, God, we submit them to you and their idea, their bullseye of what marriage actually is. We submit that to you today. Would you help us in our marriages? Would you encourage us and would you strengthen us today? For wives specifically, with everything that they face and everything that they go through and everything that they have to walk through, even in our culture and in a relationship and a family, God, would you give them supernatural strength today and encourage them? Blow wind in their sails today and empower them for the journey ahead. We trust you and we believe you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.
Hey, well, whoever you are and wherever you are, thank you for joining us today. And I just want to acknowledge just people that are here today that are watching us that you're not a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus. You're trying to figure out what this is like. You're trying to maybe tuned, tuned in or click the link today or watch this on Facebook. Can I say today that you can be new today? You can have a new life today. You can be restored today. You can have peace. You can have harmony. You can have healing in your life. And that comes through Jesus, the good news of what Jesus has done for you given his life for you so that you could be restored back to the Father. Know the Father, love the Father, have a relationship with him. Hey, today you can do that. You can give your life to Christ. You can pray something like this. You can say, God, today I submit my life to you. I give my life to you. Today I trust in Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection for me. I trust that. I give you my life. I give you my sin, and I give you my shame. Make me new today in Jesus' name. Hey, and if you do that today, hey, you're new you pray that from faith in your heart, you're new today. You're new. You're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus. So let us know. Let us know. We'd love to be able to help you in your journey.